Welcome to the Road Tripping PT Podcast. I'm Tyler, and along with my co-host and wife, Carrie, we are two traveling doctors of physical therapy. What started as an idea to document our travels and the interesting conversations we have with people across the country has turned into this podcast. Join us as we talk all things, including travel therapy, our adventures, and interview strangers turned friends throughout our travel assignments. Welcome to the show. Sue, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to give a little bit of intro so everyone can know who you are. Sue is an occupational therapist who we met as travelers while working in Houston, Texas at Shriners Children's Hospital. She is a maina. I'm a maniac. Quite, uh, you're quite literally the reason why we took our job in Maine in the first place. So aside from being excellent, you, very knew, you found out Maine people were nice people. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> Carrie thought you were an extremely knowledgeable occupational therapist who helped her out a lot while she was at Shriners. And I feel like after living in Maine and going to the family cabin of yours, I feel like we've almost become part of the family. So we've appreciated it and I'm happy. Camps. You got the word right. It's not a cabin. It's a camp. It's a camp. I forgot. That's new. That's new from. What's the definition of a camp, Tyler? Do you remember? It's somewhere between a house and a shack. Somewhere. <laughs> it falls between a house and a shack. <laughs> I would say that's right where you're at. Yes. Somewhere between a house and a shack. Okay. Ah, well, welcome. I'm happy we could sit down and talk finally. It's been a while. Yeah, I know. It's so cool. Well, um, what I want to start with today was when did, where did you start? Because you're, you've been an occupational therapist for quite a few years now. So where yeah. did it all start and when did you, how long have you been practicing? Um, I started practicing in 79. Were you even thought of in 79? No. Was your mother even out of high school in 79? Probably not. Just Maybe barely. Not. Just barely. Well, okay. So I started in 79. I had probably the ideal first job during an ideal time for therapists to really cut their teeth on therapy. And I started at Eastern Maine Medical Center. I almost stayed in Philadelphia. My last clinical, we had three clinicals that we had to do. I was in New Jersey, Philadelphia, and um, Philadelphia was first at McGee. Oh, and then I was at a psych rotation in Connecticut, which was pretty scary hospital back in the day when psych hospitals were very scary. Um, But my first job brought me back to Maine. I'd been out of Maine for, you know, all of college, my degrees from Syracuse, blah, 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 blah. Um, And my mother sent me this little thing and she goes, Eastern Maine Medical Center is looking for an OT. It was her way to kind of lure me back. And so that's in Bangor. So if you think about where you guys were, it was just north, due northwest. Yeah. So Eastern Maine at the time, right now it's a uh, level two trauma center. I think there's probably five to 600. I can't remember. But at the time, if you, this is before, this is how old I am. This is before Medicare had provisions for uh, rehabilitation to be offered at the skilled level, believe it or not. So when I was there is when that kind of exploded. And then all of these skilled nursing facilities rolled out uh, therapy. But my understanding of therapy um, and rehabilitation was acute rehabilitation. So was it uh, PTOT in a skilled nursing wasn't really a thing before? No. Good Lord, no. So in Maine, we didn't have a rehab hospital. We had no skilled beds, blah, 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 blah. If you needed rehab in the state of Maine, you went to Eastern Maine Medical or Maine Medical Center. We were the two premier rehab. I mean, we had three physiatrists. um, And it was an incredible experience because... It was before clot-busting drugs. It was before seatbelt laws. It was before um, uh, drunk driving was no longer, you know, not appropriate. It was before enhanced 911. It was before paramedics. So the people that we saw, heavy, heavy, heavy trauma. Um, If you had a spinal cord injury, it was complete. There was no such thing as an incomplete injury. If you had a stroke, it was dense. You know, we had uh, people that would go through endarterectomies and stroke out on the table, like serious, serious strokes. 
Um, if you had a brain injury, you were going to be thrown from the car because you weren't wearing a seatbelt and you didn't have your doors locked. And so the trauma that we saw was really, really, really severe. And Maine had, at the time, uh, logging in the paper mill industry was very, very big. So um, we had a lot of people with spinal cord injuries from logging and farming, a lot of farming and logging accidents, as you might imagine, and then yeah. ski accidents. So... Um, we had a rotation. Our staff, the rehab team, was amazing. We actually brought the Ranchos team, Ranchos Los Amigos team. They wrote the, they developed yeah. the book, the cognitive levels of cognitive dysfunction. We actually brought that whole team to the state of Maine. Had this right after they published that book because we had so many people with brain injury, and we had an emerging coma program. So. If you came into the hospital, you stayed put. There was no place to go unless you went to New England Rehab in Walbert or you went to Craig Institute or you went to Shepherd or someplace like that. So we served everybody from basically start to finish. Um, people were in for severe injuries. People were in the hospital for two, three, four, five months. Wow. So you really got to know who your patients were. So that was almost... Instead of going to a sniff, the hospital was your sniff at the time. It wasn't a sniff because it was three hours a day. It was acute rehab. Oh, you had acute rehab for that long. Wow. Uh, it was it was acute, and so we had rotations. So we finally rotate started a rotational schedule with the therapist. So you would be gen med gen med surge, where you'd go into ICU. We had a burn. We actually had uh, the state of Maine, Eastern Maine, Maine Medical Center in Boston, and then Texas had an agreement about burn patients and uh, Easter Maine would take 33, Maine Med would take up to 55% and it was basically body burned. And then anything over that would, people would be sent out. They would go to Boston or they'd go to Houston. And um, so we had burn people because uh, we had a lot of people with wood stoves. We still do. There's still a lot of people like that in the state. And then we had a rehab floor. We had, believe it or not, we had a sniff attached to the hospital. So when somebody um, could not tolerate three hours a day, we would put them there. And it was actually a 10-bed sniff that was actually a separate unit, but was it was called the Kelly unit. It was attached to the hospital. Then our outpatient, we had three plastic and hand surgeons. Get this. So outpatients was a total rotation. Trauma, hand trauma, replantation, MCP arthroplasties, flexor tendon injuries, um, severe, severe, severe hand trauma and surgery was part of my rotation. That was back in the day when you everything was customized, everything was off, nothing was off the shelf. There were no, I remember the first year they, that Royland started to make a resting pan splint. And uh -huh. we thought that was a funny, oh, we, oh, you know, a splint who fits everybody fits nobody. I mean, we were such splint snobs. So I did dynamic outriggers. I mean, everything, brachial plexus injuries, you name it. We were in uh, the operating room making splints. We would go to surgical procedures. It was the best job ever. And then the other thing that was kind of unique about the job is we had a lot of school system contracts and um, because school systems had did not hire therapists back in the day. And I got certified in SI and we did the sensory integration battery. So, and it was just consulting to schools, consulting to schools, consulting to schools. So any day, when I was a man, I could do coma stim. I might do a feeding evaluation, wheelchair seating and positioning. We had a wheelchair clinic. I might see a person with spinal cord injury, head injury, stroke, then go down and do a dynamic hand splint, and then in the next hour do the ears battery. And this is all... <laughs> <laughs> I say, so you covered almost every single thing Everything. you do as an occupational therapist right away. Right. Wow. Right. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And so I was there. That was how I cut my teeth. And so, you know, I left there and I go, whew. So when I left, I went to work for a center for independent living, consumer-directed center for independent living. And I was with them off and on for about 15 years 
And in that job, we developed um, so many programs and policies, disability policy. And there was some advocacy, there was some um, assessment. I wrote um, the first um, Medicaid waiver, um, Medicaid as a program in the early 80s allowed each state to customize their waiver programs. And so I wrote a waiver for consumer-directed personal care assistance. So we would do assessments for people that were cognitively intact and could manage and direct their own care. And then we would teach them how to hire, fire, manage a network of personal care attendants in their homes, teach them how to do the books um, because they would actually get passed through money. And so we taught them how to set up a payroll system. Um, within that job, um, I also got certified as a driver educator. We had a huge, huge, huge driver education program where we had a full-size evaluation van, a minivan, and a sedan. And so I became a licensed uh, driver evaluator. And I did that for many, many years. And it was full on board, head injury, stroke, spinal cord, it, did, you know, it didn't matter. Horizontal steering, you know, all the high tech stuff. And um, then we uh, were big experts in accessibility and I took drafting <laughs> because we had to do very specific home modification consultations. And so I would have to draft up draft up my recommendations for, you know, bathroom conversion or what have you. So drafting, uh, or I'm sorry, accessibility consultation is something that I had a ton of work with. We actually ended up hiring an architect, Dennis, who served for many, many, many years um, at the pleasure of several presidents as the head of kind of the National Architectural Compliance Board. Um, and he was he was a coworker of mine for many many years. Um, the other thing, what else did we do that was kind of unique? So it was just a very unique model. Um, I came and left two or three times in, because I wanted to get back into the clinic, and so um, I went to New England Rehab, which was in Portland at the time, and managed their spinal cord program and their oncology program and was a rehab manager for them. So it, it, and the department was huge. We had like, you know, I don't know, 50 therapists um, at the time. It was a very, very big department. And so I did that, went back to F1, back and forth a couple of times. And then um, I had started writing in my early 30s, as in, you know, oh, writing. Right. Yeah, yeah, writing. And so um, one of my friends who is a person of means and um, started, and I had kind of lured her into it a little bit, and she ended up starting um, Carlisle Academy, which is where I was there for 20 years and managed the therapy program. And it was all equine-based work. And um, was that 20 years full-time program? Yep. So I started with them part-time. And I was with Alpha One part-time. I was at New England Rehab part-time. And then with them, you know, I was kind of piecing together. Because Alex was younger. um, So I pieced together some um, part-time gigs. And I was with them for probably five years before I went full-time. And there... I got my certification as a therapeutic carriage driver instructor, therapeutic riding instructor, and then I got my hippotherapy clinical specialization, which is so you've literally like done advanced, every um, advanced certification. You've pretty much done every setting, including rehab manager. And then for anyone who doesn't yep. know, could you explain what hippotherapy is? Yes, hippotherapy is a therapy using the horse as a treatment surface. And there's a specific way that and, and methods that you use to treat different people. And our clinic, we had a regular clinic. Um, and so children and adults, we saw 100 people a week. It was a very big program. Um, and it was PT and OT. Occasionally we brought in a speech therapist, but it was PT and OT 
with a regular old clinic. And so part of the time, the person would be in the therapy clinic and then the, the remainder of their treatment session was mounted. And um, truly, truly amazing. Um, developed a course, developed curriculum for through the age continuum. So we had groups for children that started as young as four, three to four, three to six would be one group. Then six to 12 was another kind of age group curriculum. And then we went all the way up. So the youngest person I treated there was 18 months and the oldest was a hundred. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so every setting, but also a wide range of pediatrics to geriatric, but the, the diagnostic groups that we saw there were wider than any place I'd ever worked. It was huge. So uh, even, even though Carrie has worked and done a little bit of hypotherapy, I don't know a lot. Like what, explain the, the benefit you get. Like, what is it about being on a horse? It's just, as we, I used to say, the tagline should be, we, hippotherapy, we stimulate brain stems because the vestibular proprioceptive input is so intense. And, and again, depending upon the position you put the person in, the, I mean, the science, you have to know equine science really well, and you have to know human science really well, and then you bring the two together and you make it work. And um, part of what I did early on was I got my certification in equine and canine massage. I also started a little business, but it also, you know, having a horse competing, I competed under saddle, under harness, and then having that massage therapy business really, it was soup to nuts what I had to know about horse science. And um, you have to really understand how the horses put together what their, um, I mean, we had a very sophisticated assessment for when we brought in horses for their um, temperament and their, their physical confirmation and evaluation of their way of going or how their gates worked. So you have to be very very specific. So we could walk, I could walk around the farm and go to my boss and say, Hey, Sarah, I need a, you know, I'm looking for, we really need to get a, you know, a 12 foot or a um, 12, 12 hand, 12.2 hand pony that is wide through the hips and narrow through the chest and delivers a lot of proprioception at the trot. <laughs> you know, you could be that specific because you had to profile all the animals. So you're so specific then even, I, even the type of horse you're choosing, you're being really specific. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And then, um, and we had a great, we had 22. I mean, we had a great group of horses. Wow. My horse was one of them. And then when I put him down, I had to put him down. He was about 30. I got him as a four-year-old. I put him down when he was about 30. He lost his hind end. There was some... Um, but it's probably um, um, some issues going on in his hind end. And you know what Maine winters are like. The yeah. issues were identified in September or August. We were scheduled to have a really, really bad winter that year. And had he fallen on the ice or I, if something happened and I had to put him down, it's really hard to put down a large animal in the winter. Gotcha. So basically I had to make a decision after they were identified about how I wanted to proceed. And so I had him put down the end of October. So he lived out two and a half months of retirement and then I had him put down. When I had him put down, kind of, it kind of triggered something in me. And I said, I think I'm being told I need to be do, doing something else. And I had always told Dan I wanted to check out traveling once the kids were old enough that I felt like we were disencumbered. So everything lined up with Kenny being put down and then Alex graduating college. I looked at Dan, I go, okay, <laughs> time to hit the road. So you, yeah, much different. You didn't travel at all. You did every setting, rehab manager, hippotherapy, and then yep. later in your career was, right. is there gone? Time to have a little fun and check right. it out. Right. And that's why I decided I wanted to travel, knowing eventually I would settle back down into a higher paying, really secure job a few years before my retirement. Because as you know, in travel, you're not paying taxes. Yeah. 
So I wanted to make sure my income was, you know, uh, my taxable income. And it, it just kind of worked out really well. And we knew, like when I came to Houston, I came to Houston to evaluate Texas because we were talking about making the move if Ben and Hannah, my oldest son, has a, had a child. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I'm in Houston and they tell us they're pregnant. That sealed the deal. So okay. when when you uh, when you first started, though, you also didn't go really far because your Dan he works and you want to stay kind of close. So you picked local assignments, like where you could get um, home. Well, the first assignment, you know what, Tyler, it kind of varied. First assignment was about four hours away. You're not going to do that in a weekend. No. Um, so Cape Cod was about three and a half, four hours. Callis was about four hours. And then I had several assignments in Massachusetts. One was like an hour and a half from home. One was an hour and 15 minutes from home. So I went home quite a bit. I went home not every weekend, but pretty much three out of four, I'd go home. So, um, yeah, I mean, we could do that. But that got really tiring. I was, on, it was, I was doing home health. It's like, do you ever get your butt out of the car? Never, you know, unless I'm carrying something. I mean, you know what that's like. Yeah. You're the beast of burden. You're driving everywhere for work and to go home. You what? You're driving everywhere for work and also to drive home. So you were driving everywhere. You know, I had my pit stop in New Hampshire to do my documentation on Friday because I didn't want to bring, I've always closed the door on work when I walk into the house. So I didn't want to come into my house with a, I mean, you know what home health documentation is like? It's a job that never ends. So I had a steering wheel desk and I would, that's what I call it, the job that never ends. Even though it's fun, <laughs> yeah, it never ends. I mean, it's, you get that beautiful environment, you know, it's, it's a wonderful place to work, but your documentation just goes on and on and on. But I had a steering wheel desk and I would pull into the New Hampshire uh Right before I got to Maine, you know, just the little rest area. Oh, yeah. That's where I had my interview for Shriners was at that rest area. (laughs) Because I didn't want to have my interview at home. So I said, I'll go to my rest area. And they said, we'll call you at five. And I said, okay, our interview in my car. Isn't that funny? Yeah. That's the one I did it for Maine was uh, because of such a time difference. I got a call as I was just leaving my parents' house, driving to work in California. And I stopped at the gas station to fill up. And I was like, okay. And I was just pumping gas (laughs) and talking on the phone. (laughs) It was the shortest interview before I had to head to work. And uh, it's crazy. I mean, what you do as a traveler, you guys know this, you know, you become minimalist somewhat you know, and, but you still need to have your things. I mean, I still carry my pictures and I've got, I had a box, you know, mom's travel Christmas. (laughs) That's what the box says. Mom's travel Christmas, you know, and then you're duplicating everything. So God, how many toaster ovens and coffee pots do we own? It's crazy. And then if you don't have one, you'll buy it. And then the next place might have it. So now you just have an extra one and you don't want to get rid of it. Right. You just like, oh, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, Dan and I, between the two of us, we have four coffee pods, three crock pots. So half of that stuff when he moves here is staying in Maine. It's going to camp. And then. So talk about, so you, because we met in Shriners at the uh, Houston job. Yeah. And then, so your Dan was staying in Maine during that whole time. Yep. He came once. He came at Christmas time. I think when we had. We went, all went out to dinner. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. We went to that beer garden, right? <laughs> beer garden. That beer garden. And that's when it all started, and then we decided to go to Maine. Yes, that's right. That's when we started. You met Dan, and you go, oh, can't be that bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that list I gave her? I gave, I gave you guys so oh, much. Oh, we went through all of it. We went through a I bunch of it. I think you checked everything. You checked all the boxes. Uh, I want to ask, so you were saying you had to put down your horse. Is that the one that we read about in the newspaper clipping in your cabin? Yeah, in your the camp? one that went swimming. Let's go swimming. 
So I want to I want to describe your seven bested. I didn't have any idea what camp was when we got to right. Maine. So I was working at the hospital there, and I was trying to describe where we were living, and people were like, "It sounds like a camp." It's like I think it's a cabin. And so eventually when we went to your camp, yeah, ours was a cabin. Yours was definitely. Yours, yeah. yours is kind of almost, it, it's very close to house. Yes. Yes. <laughs> ours is basically house. It's like it, just south of a house. But you know, there's a lot of people in Maine who would consider that a mansion. I mean, well, I'm oh, sure yes. you got to see the poverty that exists yep. in Maine. Yeah. How you can drive on the coast and one minute go by a shack, you cannot believe that somebody would live there. And then you drive a mile down the road and it's a huge mansion. Yeah. You know, the the poverty, the class, and um, it's just, it's just, there's huge. And I'm sure there's, it's like that in a lot of states, but Maine as a state is quite poor because they're heavily taxed and the salaries are not as high. So um, that's one of the reasons that, I said, my high paying job, my last job needs to be high paying. It can't be in Maine because yeah. I'm not going to get it. You know, yeah, it's kind of what we talk ridiculous. about as travelers. Like it's, it'd be nice to buy a house there, but like we have to travel right now to have the salary that would make it worth it because it gets, right. it's tough. Well, that's kind of what we're going to do, Tyler. We're going to rent here. We're going to uh-huh. stay here six months out of the year and you know after we retire Uh we're going to be in maine in the camp or something different we'll be in the camp so can you i want you to describe camp life so we had a great time going but carrie wanted me to ask could you yeah like uh so because the camp's been in your family for a long time so yeah like what is the concept of camp because everyone i talked to in maine their goal is to get a camp on the lake well the concept for a lot of people in maine is that it stays in the family and you have that family legacy. So that camp, Dan and I owned it. We bought it out of the estate with his brother after his father passed, but we turned it into a trust. So it's in a family trust and we set it up that way so that um, nobody would gain any, have any financial gain by trying to sell it or take it out of the family. And what it meant for us was that um, the kids can run free. So <laughs> I want to make it sound like they're all animals, but they, the kids had a lot of liberty um, at camp. There was never a bedtime. Okay, so camp doesn't have a bedtime. Okay. Camp doesn't have a dinner time. Camp doesn't have a breakfast time or a lunch time. There's no one thing that you're supposed to do at camp. You can do whatever you want. So if you decide at 10 o'clock in the morning that you want to have a beer and go read the paper in the hammock, you can't. We're not going to judge, okay? <laughs> and, the, and the other thing is you form relationships. You know, we have very close relationships in that cove and around the lake. So you met Janice and Dennis, you know, the Toomeys and the Pothias. I mean, all of those people around us are friends. They have become friends. And our kids grew up together. Alex has a friend who is from um, Oklahoma, Chris, who started going to camp. His grandmother lives at the end of the cove, Margaret and Paul. And Margaret passed a couple years ago um, from cancer, sadly. And But Chris started going there as a six-year-old. He would go there for three weeks out of the year, at summer, something like that. He and Alex became very, very good friends. They're still friends. They're still very close friends because of technology. They can do that. And the camps, they varied so widely. Like you might have some that are the four season and almost like basically a house, but then yours, I don't think it was insulated even, right? No. Well, there's one piece in the front porch one piece of insulation you saw that yes yes (laughs) (laughs) other than that it just looked like it ran out of money time or motivation i'm not (laughs) sure what happened um you know i don't know um the the house next to the camp next to us the pop is what you didn't see is they leveled it kept the footprint and it's becoming four seasons oh because they started it i remember them having that uh, concrete done it's done it's all completely done now? It's done. Nice. it's done. They won't, they still have a house in town 
they have an in-law apartment where Kitty um, lives. That's Peg's mom in the apartment. And I can't imagine they'll sell that house until Kitty's no longer able to live there or Mia's, you know, not who's on her own. So Mia, you know, Connor and and Alex grew up together. Mia was adopted from China as a six-month-old baby. As a six-month-old baby, I saw her the week after she came to the United States. She's babbling in like little, you know, Peg's like, okay, so tell me, how does she look? You know, it's basically I'm doing the, you know, giving her the once-over as a therapist. And now she's brilliant and, you know, in college. So, and she probably will have me as her maid of honor. That's the plan, her matron of honor. That's, she considers me her friend because we'd swim across the cove together. That's the kind of stuff. Where do you, where do you build memories like that, Tyler? Yeah. Where, no, I we, mean, you guys have built a lot of memories. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but no, the, the camp was awesome. That was very, I mean, the memories from being able to just run and jump in the lake, the, uh, yes. the awesome plywood shower door that slides in the kitchen. Oh, are you talking about, oh, that's a, that was a bathroom modification. <laughs> I liked it. I told you that. We took out a cabinet in the kitchen. We installed the camp shower. Then you, that was my idea. Yeah, that was, uh, it was good. Design. You open the door, you close the shower. You close the door, you open the shower. How convenient. <laughs> and then I just remember when we first got there, like, here's your bedroom. Don't make too much noise. We'll knock right here. And it was just a towel. It's not a, it, that wasn't a towel. That's a door. It's a curtain. We call it the door. The door, yes. Hey, those were new doors I put in. Insulated. We loved it. <laughs> That's what camp is. Yes. You know? Um, because you were a hippotherapist and you no, had. I was an occupational therapist. Well, okay, sorry. Not. Sorry. Occupational therapist. Never say, look into the audience. Never say hippotherapist. Occupational therapist. Occupational physical therapist using hippotherapy as a treatment strategy. Yes. So when you use a, um, let's see, what are, uh, let's say ultrasound, even though nobody does it anymore, you don't become an ultrasoundologist. Yes. Right? You're just a therapist who uses ultrasound. Correct. Well, occupational therapist who had done a lot of work. <laughs> in <laughs> therapy, yeah. Uh, Carrie wanted me to ask you to share your personal horse story because the one we read about it swimming across the lake. Oh, Tyler, you're going to bring me in a dark part of my life. Okay. <laughs> so Kenny and a few horse lovers and I decided to go swim. We'd go to Bugganet, the, our go to our camp lake, our pond. My horse wouldn't go in the water. And you can't ever ask your horse to do something and not accept him to, you have to expect him to do it. Okay. So if your mom says, Tyler, eat your broccoli, or you're going to sit here until you eat your broccoli, you eventually will eat it or you'll at least try it. Right. Yeah. So it's the same with the horse. You can't ask them for something and then give up. So we're trying to get him in the lake. You want to go in the lake. And then finally he jumped into the lake and he, and I had him on a lead line. He actually jumped over me and I lost the line and we have it on video. The wake that that, if fortunately he was only six years old at the time, the wake that that horse was producing from his swim, that's how fast he was going. Dan tried to catch him hanging onto a boat, catch the lead line. Couldn't in by the time he left the boat, the horse was gone. The horse just bolted and it went across the cove into that swampy area and laid down and said, <laughs> Okay, I'm in the water, I'm not going anywhere. We tried for probably two hours to get him to turn him around to get him to go back. And finally he submitted. I'm in the boat. I'm holding the lead line. Come on, Candy, let's go. And then all of a sudden the boat guy says, Suey's pushing us back to the swamp. <laughs> how strong he was. And so he said, you're going to have to get off and ride him. So I'm in the middle of the lake. I jump overboard, hop on his back. Let's go. And he's just swimming. And, you know, with me on his back, he, he's like, sure, I'll do this. So I just, I have a lead and I'm driving him back. We get out. My legs are all cut up from being in the brambles, trying to get that horse 
turned around. He gets out, he shakes off, and he's like, okay, what's next? Now, did it, he didn't have a scratch on him. <laughs> Bastard. And by the time we came up on the, you know, I just ride him up over the, into the, you know, out of the lake. There are hundreds of people lining the cove, boats, and they're all... And I just look at him and go, you bastard. And he's just like, okay, let's go. Next. One of the funniest stories. Yeah. So you had to, I had to put pen to paper on that one. Yeah. Right. Yes. When I saw that and we started reading that at your cabin, that was one of the funniest articles I've ever read. It was sad though. I was so upset. If you see the video, you're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. This horse is like flying across the lake. They swim really well. Which is why we brought him. We wanted him to go swimming. He went no. swimming. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> so. What else you got for me? For questions. You're, you're in Texas now. Permanent job. Hello. How y'all? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> what, what type of work are you doing now? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. So it's the kind of work I've never done before. And it is, I am in, it's called San Antonio. State of Texas has several supported living centers around the state. So it's out of Texas Health and Human Services. I'm a public employee now, public sector worker, which I can't believe because I've always been in the private sector. And, but it's, again, it's my pre-retirement gig. And um, I got the job, uh, Shriners gave me a, a really, really good recommendation. They're like, if you don't take her, you're crazy. I looked at several other jobs. Um, I got offered a job in Waco and it was a outpatient pediatric clinic. And they wanted me to really um, build their hippotherapy program. And my boss was a guy that worked at the Ayers Clinic in California the gene airs clinic very tempting but it was private sector covid influenced my decision a great deal because gotcha. i'm like i'm not sure if i'm gonna have a job you know what i'm saying you're just like yeah. job security you know what you become a public employee you have job security you do yeah. and they then public employees in texas make a very good salary they really treat them very well in my opinion um then again, they come from Maine. <laughs> so um, this job, it's an ICF level facility for people with intellectual disabilities. And the reason I got it is because I had a great reference, but also because 20 years of my experience is adults, 20 years in pediatrics. The sad part about the job is there are a lot of people, older people, the the youngest is 18, the oldest is in their 80s. People over 60 with developmental disabilities were not provided with early intervention and treatment. And their signs and symptoms related to their disabilities, cerebral palsy, autism, they're very severe, very severe. We have people on campus that are G-tube fed because of defensiveness. They couldn't tolerate foods because of, you know, that developmental condition that was never treated. And then you also see some very sad stories. Um, Like there's a gentleman I work with right now and his developmental history sounds like this. He He was beaten with a bullwhip by his, from his father. Goodness. As, as a six month old child. Okay. So what we do is the PTs and the OTs and the speech therapists are the holders of this document called the personal physical nutritional management plan. And it's basically the plan that's developed to keep the, all of the residents healthy There are about 300 residents on our campus, and they live in homes. 
and they're basically um, the homes are designated based upon the, you know, they're kind of specific. So in this home, there's 24 hour nursing, they have the people in that home might need supplemental oxygen, PG tube fed, you know, have a lot of tubes and lines. And then there are homes where people are very ambulatory, but there are a lot of behavioral issues. So there's a ton of sensory processing, behavioral, orthopedic, neural, it's everything. Rear syndromes, rear conditions, brain injury. It's amazing some of the conditions. The people are very healthy because they're well cared for. Um, some of the people will transition out into the community, but our job here as therapists is to evaluate and consult. Okay, so if I want to treat somebody, I can. I have that discretion. Uh-huh. But generally speaking, I'm doing evaluation consultation and telling the home team how they need to care for this person. Okay. So they need to eat with an infant sized spoon because they shovel and it puts them at choke rest. So there's different risk assessments that we do choking, neurologic behavior. Um, metabolic syndrome, skin integrity infections. So there's like eight different areas. And we, between the therapist and the nurses, we determine what the, that person's risks are and we develop a plan around those risks, if that makes any sense. So I'm in and out of homes all the time looking. Like if I go into a home, I'll have a staff person say, he, Sue, who are you to see? I go, everybody. I'm here to see everybody. And so we set up this plan for dining and then for nutritional and medication management and positional devices. And like we have our own wheelchair fab and everything. Um, And we monitor those plans. So we have a whole team, they're called compliance monitors, the people who work for us that are on a schedule to go out and monitor those plans then as therapists, we go out and monitor them as needed or a minimum of two to four times a year to make sure the plans are effective, okay? Is this kind of a diet still working? Is a chopped diet okay for this person? Have they had any choking or aspiration issues? It's very, um, it's a very non-traditional job with very traditional therapist um, skills I'm the only one in the department that has any pediatric experiences. So I'm trying to bring the sensory processing part of it here. And so far, so good. I'm getting some really good um, support from people. It's fascinating. I was going to say that does not sound like any type of traditional job. No. But then again, I haven't really had many traditional jobs. <laughs> I was going to say. go for the atypical jobs. I love it. <laughs> You know, it's like, I like that. Your most, quote, normal job was as a traveler doing home health. Otherwise, you're doing hippotherapy and you're doing the, right. the whole first part of your career before right. hippotherapy. Well, I did critical. When I was at Calus, I did critical access. A lot of people don't have that experience. And did you guys ever go to Calus? We never, made it to, we never made it to Calus. Um, but yeah, I, before Reddington Fairview, I had never heard of what critical access was. Critical access? It's much it's more like you're describing almost because when I was there, it's more of a screening job. Like, yeah, you give therapy, but you're almost like this patient's this bad. They need to go here and you're trying Send to get them out. out. Yeah, exactly. But did you have swing beds? See, we had we swing beds. We did. So we swung our orthopedics. Yep. And I loved doing that because we could track them in the OR, okay, when they're coming up to the floor and our mobilization post hip and post knee was tremendous. I mean, we would see people two hours post, post up, get them up, you know, get them up, get them going, get them prepped. We had great outcomes with our knees and our hips there because of uh, the mobilization. And we also had work when I was at Calus, I developed a program for the emergency department. And so what the OT's role might look like in the emergency department, because we did consult to the emergency department. But I mean, how many beds did Reddington Fairview had? I don't know. I'm at a loss right now. 
Um, we had 22 beds at Gallus. Probably close, probably around there. And then yeah. they would rarely ever do two to a room. It was almost always one person. Always single. And then before that, I actually hadn't heard of swing beds. So for anyone that doesn't know, it's mm-hmm. like, basically it's a cute rehab in the hospital almost. So it's, it's at the sniff yeah. level. They let yeah. you swing. You can swing for usually seven to 10 days is what they'll let you swing. It's a Medicare rule. Which I agree. It's really nice post-op because then I see them day one and then I transition. Boom, bam. Bam. But critical access, I mean, we had a helipad right there because they would be life flighted out to Eastern Maine, my old alma mater. And um, what I thought was so interesting, it was one floor hospital. There was not, there wasn't even a basement. And when somebody passed away, it was all very close. So the mortician would come in with a gurney if the person was a veteran, it was covered with an American flag. If a person was a non-veteran, it was a beautiful quilt. So when somebody passed away, it was very, very, a close, close, close experience. Likewise, if they were um, helibacted out, they're running down the, you know, they're going down the, the hallway. Yep. <laughs> There's only one hallway to get to the helipad. So everything to life and death was very close there. And it was a very intimate, intimate setting. And you're way out. You're way on the tip of Maine out there in Calais. It was go to Bangor. I used to say go to Bangor, take a right, go out a hundred miles. So, and the only thing that there was in Calais was a couple of restaurants and Walmart. And so one day I wanted to go to TJ Maxx in Bangor. And people in Calais would drive to Bangor like nothing. And, How far and, is that? But over a hundred miles. It's almost two hours. Oh wow! So it's a hundred miles, and now the road to get there—it's called the airline route—and so they call it that for a reason because you can go seventy or eighty on it if there's no ice. If there's ice, forget it. And there were places that were iced up really bad sometimes. But <laughs> I called home and Dan says, "What'd you do today?" It was a Saturday. I said. I drove 200 miles to go to TJ Maxx. <laughs> <laughs> that is how it was. Even when we were staying in Rome, it's like, we want to go to the store today. Yeah. Okay. We need 40 minutes to get there. <laughs> we were, so we're writing a, a post right now talking about like what's gone wrong on our road yeah. trip yeah. And so for the one on Maine. I'm going to talk about, okay, we got to Portland and it started snowing at like 1030 at night. And then right when we get to the dirt road leading to our cabin in Rome, all I can think about is like, Sue Grant, what did you get us into? <laughs> yeah, but what about, what was the, the general store that I told you to go to? Christie's? The what? Christie's? No. No. The oh, Hussie's. The what? Hussies. <laughs> Have you talked about hussies? No, no. Uh, <laughs> you saw the wedding dresses, though. Talk yeah. long. Uh, hussies has, what, you can get your shotgun, your Carhartt, and your wedding dresses. And when we were there <laughs> buying ammo, some people were trying on their wedding dresses. Absolutely. There was a shotgun wedding, you yeah. know? It's, wasn't that a great store, though? I love that store. It was cool. Yeah, it had everything we wanted. Did you get a hussy shirt or anything? Did you Carrie get Carrie got, got a hussy shirt. I, I may have one. And they were also one of the places when, like, the whole toilet paper's out of stock thing happened. We went there to, I think, look for some. <laughs> Gotta love hussies. Yeah. Main, yeah main that place is crazy. What town is that in, though? What town is it actually in? <sighs> It's not in. Um, it's south of Augusta a little bit. I, I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm gonna forget. Carrie knows more than I do because she was always map it. It's it two. It's on two on one. Yeah, I know it was that. on the way to Cooper's Mills, I believe. Cooper's that, Mills. It's that in that area. area. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I wanted to ask because I had talked to someone else. We never made it to the county. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I know. Uh, okay, so here's okay. the thing about the county. Okay. Dan went to college in the county. Did you know that? I didn't know they had a college. University of Presque Isle. And it used to be a preeminent, I'm not sure what it is now, but preeminent college for um, in the Northeast for phys ed. 
That's what he majored in, health, phys ed, and recreation. The tagline for Umpy, I hope I don't offend anybody, but with the tagline when I say this, because I didn't invent the tagline, we're men and men and so are the women. (laughs) It was a very, you know, the girls here were pretty butch. And, um, but they had great teams, great sports teams, excellent athletes here. And there was nothing to do there but get drunk. So it was a big drinking school. But southern Aroostook County and central Aroostook County, that's where all the potatoes are. Okay. Potatoes, blueberries are down east. Potatoes and apples. If you go to the west, it's called the Great North Woods. So my father was a forester, and he forested in the Great North Woods. So when you hit the trains, you guys went to the ghost trains, yes? Did you go to the ghost trains? I don't think we did. We we <gasps> did we did do um, the Golden Road and Hodden. Yeah. Right. Is that area kind of the North Woods? No, the Northwest is is further north. So from gotcha. Greenville, okay, Greenville is at the southern end of the Great North Woods, basically. Okay. But if you get to the top of Maine. That's, you know, Canada, and it's the um, Allagash is up there, and the um, Wilderness Waterway comes down through the Great North Woods. My father did that. He took us once, and that's quite a trip. You know, it's considered the trip of a lifetime for a lot of people. But if you, the best part of the county is the northern part of the county. I know, and we never made it. Sorry, Carrie was giving me some stuff. She still has that list of things you told us to do. Um, we were talking about the county. Oh, here. I was showing her all the things that we crossed off our list that she gave us. Oh, you got the list? Do you still, still get the it. list? I have it because we're going back here, getting um, into everything. Okay, let me see the list. <gasps> Shit. Oh, my God. It's like seven did you pages. Guys, did you climb Tumble Down? Did you do Tumble we, Down? So we hiked mm-hmm. Tumble Down, which was amazing. And then I was just, I thought Greenville and Katahdin, like that's, it's crazy how thick your woods are. And that's not even like a fraction of it. Look, the very right. thing we did when we got there, number nine on your list, National Toboggan Championships. <laughs> you went there first. <laughs> that, that was, was our first week. All, all 100 people. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Though? It was cool seeing someone do 40 miles an hour down an ice toboggan. Yeah. I set baby right up, you know. I think they even yeah. spray Pam on it. I think some people spray Pam on their toboggans. It's, it's crazy how fast they go. And they would just hit the frozen lake, and then some of them would just topple and crack themselves right on it. Yeah, well, that was that's part of it. Yeah. Dan wanted to have a team, a, a four-person team, and do that years ago. I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> okay, hang on to that list. But I, tumble oh, down, I told you about tumble down. Tumble down, I climbed as a Girl Scout. But... um. My brother saved somebody's life on Tumbledown. They had a bad fall. Did I tell you this? No. This is years ago. They had a fall. It was a woman. And he went and did cervical stabilization with her for hours until they got somebody there. And it was actually featured, a little write-up featured in Life Magazine back in the day. Yeah, those hikes out there. I mean, in general, all hikes are can be dangerous, but you're there's nothing right. around. Like you're not getting out of there. You have to take a dirt road to even get to the trail. Right. Right. And Katahdin, we did it, and it was a great, beautiful day. But Carrie was looking. I think like five people had died on the trail since we've done it. Oh yeah. Well, that's the end of the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, and you, did we tell you we got passed by people that were completing the Appalachian Trail? That were full full trailers, yeah. So, so well, not only that, but we were hiking it, and there's like this group of four older hikers. Like, right. they were definitely retirees. Yeah. And they had this is we were talking to them at the top because they beat us up there, just kicked our butt. This was the last day of, for them on the Appalachian Trail, and I was like, "Holy right. cow, you guys just smoked yeah. us up this mountain!" And uh, they all went down. They were drinking a beer in the parking lot. Oh, yeah. That's, they're called through hikers. Yeah. And the through hikers look down on their nose on the day hikers. I'm surprised I even talked to you. Well, they were nice, but uh, they, they were joking and said, I'm done. Never again. <laughs> it, it's a very, I have a, uh, there was an OT at New England Rehab, one of my person I supervise who was trying to do it. This The planning that you have to do for drop shipping food and 
supplies is really, really critical. So it's a whole big planning process. And I think it takes three or four months anyways. Yeah. They were saying it took a long time. Oh yeah. Crazy. Okay. What else you got? What else you want to know? Oh shoot. That was already really good. Uh, I may have to get going here because we have a few things we got to get done. I know. You you don't want to talk to me all day. (laughs) Although I would love to sit down again because I do have some other things we could dive into. Now, the other thing I'll add is I'm going to be writing a children's book. Really? Yes. And it's the, the, the kitten I adopted, Brady. He came with the name. I am a Pats fan, big Pats fan, <laughs> Pats today. He came with the name. I did not give him the name. Okay. He is ter- was terrified of everything. He was a hider. I think he came from feral colony. So I'm writing a book. And I've got it outlined called Brady, the very, very Frady cat. And the book is going to, I'm doing a promo here. The book is going to be for children four to nine ish. So it's not going to be just like a quick little storybook. It's going to be a little bit more involved and it's going to be for children that are going through a tough transition and they're living in fear and they're living in a fear-based world and it's going to talk about the power of play, helping somebody get through the fear, and the power of trust, learning to retrust again. So it'll be geared for children that have either been adopted or maybe had a loss, a big loss, whatever. But that's what the book is about. And it's going to be called Brady, the Very Fairy Brady Cat. Awesome. I'm sure you'll finish it. I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, so I need to find an uh, illustrator. Um, I need to find somebody to illustrate for me. But um, that's kind of that's going to be pull us into retirement. <laughs> I said, so how far off is retirement? Um, well, Dan's going to probably happen sooner than me. Dan wants a Dan. I think is going to come out here and drive a school bus because he wants to be at camp three months every summer. I'm like, that's- say what. Um, you want Rankin for me? He goes, no. Um, you know, you, you know what, Tyler, I'm physically capable. I'm cognitively capable. Um, I have the passion. I have the love. Let's see how long it takes me. You know, I'm in a job right now that doesn't require any physicality next to nothing. You know, I'm not doing the heavy lifting anymore. It's all right here, baby. That's the heavy lifting. <laughs> So it's all cognitive and it's a lot of that. I'm working from home three days a week. It's great right now because oh, awesome. it's a COVID. Yeah. But, um, but you know what? I'm 64. I don't know. Will I make it to 70? That'd be nice. I like working, right? I you can tell. Work. I can tell. You do too. You yeah. know, you guys both do. I enjoy working. And so I'm not going to put a number on my retirement. I'll know when it happens. And then I'll just say, you know what? Next year I'll pull up stakes and, you know, try to relax a little bit. But I enjoy working too much. I'm just like anybody else. It keeps you going. Uh, you know what? I'm st- it keeps me going to the gym. Oh. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. we miss sitting down with you at camp and eating those, uh, what are those banana thing called? Banana. Oh, the banana boats. Mm-hmm. Did you have one? You had one. Yeah. Delicious. They're good, huh? Yes, they are. Guess what I get in the crock pot today? What? Baked beans. And uh, then I've got. <laughs> how could I, I not? <laughs> how you could, what? How could I not bring this up? I have to say one more thing for I let you go. About Carrie not eating my beans. So, so we. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. So here's some bread, Tyler. Come the on. Be- the beans, the canned bread. <laughs> we we ordered a main package that a company sends for our parents, and we sent them a moxie soda. We sent yep. them a can of brown bread. I can't remember if we sent any all dressed chips. All dressed chips. So my brother drank the soda, didn't say anything, but her dad got one of the sodas, mm. and he was like, "That was like the worst thing he ever tasted." And then my parents just thought it was so funny that bread was in a can. 
What's wrong with that? I don't know. <laughs> just... Guess what I made two weeks ago? Did, did you send them whoopie pies? I, I oh, made yeah. pies. I made whoopie pies. pies for people at work. Yeah. And then today I made, um, what are they called? No bakes, no bake cookies, which is a main thing. So the whoopie pies them. were good. Yeah, the whoopie pies. So, and then all dressed. I miss the all dressed. Shit. I miss, I can't get Cape Cods out here, all dressed out here. It's really hard. They don't have the Cape Cod chips out there either. I mean, every now and then you can find them. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie was just reminding me about the all dressed, like you were saying. All dressed. Right. And Boxy is carbonated cough syrup. That's what I call it. Yeah. Moxie was not not a favorite. (laughs) That stuff is gross. Okay, Tyler. It's been real, man. All right. So hopefully we get to see you again if we swing through Texas in the future. I know. Or when we all come back, do you think you'll come back to Texas? Oh yeah, we would. We, uh, so right now, I mean, we'll probably stay here, but Sue, we're really working on loan repayment. That's a big deal for us right now. We're actually, we're getting pretty close to mine. I'm hoping by summer we may be wrapping mine up and, uh, that'll give us opportunity to take some of those jobs where maybe only one of us can get one. We'd love to go to Texas again, see you guys. We're going to go back to Maine for sure. But even yeah. some of the other states like Idaho are hard to get pair jobs. Yeah. So yeah. The plans to keep traveling. But Texas is one of those states um, where we always consider potentially moving. You know what, Tyler? I love it here. And, you know, the good news is if Joe Biden is in, you won't have to pay that off. Possibly. I, I haven't read a whole lot on it, what types they'll forgive. But, yeah, who knows? Look at <laughs> Who knows? That was like very tug and cheek, and you didn't pick up on it. If Joe Biden gets in the White House, screw it. Screw the loans. I'm out of here. Drop it. I don't, it. I don't pay like them off. I don't trust anyone to pay them off until they're gone. So I'm going to keep nobody's going to pay them off. No, and I don't expect it to. No, get that money, pay it right down. That's awesome. Yes, and That's then exciting. find a place to live. Although Absolutely. we like your idea of, honestly, if Carrie can afford it, there'll be a main camp somewhere in our life. She, we loved it up there. Cool. Well, just buy my house. It's going to be for sale next <laughs> year. <You have> that. <laughs> uh, okay, you guys. Uh, well, it's great chatting with you. I hope you, you too. We may have you on again to chat more about this hippotherapy. Like part two? Yeah. You grant Potter. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks for checking out the Road Tripping PT Podcast. If you want to follow along with our adventures, learn more about travel therapy, or just get in touch, you can find us on Instagram or on our Facebook page at Road Tripping PT. Hope you enjoyed the episode. See you next time.